You are listening to the Next Best Picture podcast, and this is our review of The Florida Project and our interview with the producer and co-writer of the film, Chris Bergash. Okay, I warned you, one drip and you're out. Oh, come on! Out now! It's gonna melt outside! It's melting inside, too. But, Bobby... Out. Thank you very much. You're not welcome! arrested a lot. These are the rooms we're not supposed to go in. But let's go anyway. Could you give us some change, please? The doctor said we have asthma and we gotta eat ice cream yeah. right away. Here you go. Hey, Lee, got a situation here. Open up. It's only second week of the summer and there's already been a dead fish in the pool. We're trying to get it back alive. Water balloons thrown at tourists. <laughs> As a mother, Moni. Yeah, Mom, you're a disgrace. New job? Yeah. If you're working, who's looking after Moni? You're not my father. I don't want to be your you father. You can't treat me like this. You don't think everybody knows what's up, Haley? Everybody. She's about to cry. I can always tell when adults are about to cry. We're just talking. We gotta figure something out. All right, everyone. You were just listening to the trailer for the Florida Project, and the story is as follows: Haley and her six-year-old daughter Mooney live in a motel that's managed by Bobby, a man whose stern exterior hides a deep reservoir of kindness and compassion. Despite her harsh surroundings, the precocious and ebullient. Mooney has no trouble making each day a celebration of life. Her endless afternoons overflow with mischief and grand adventure, while her mother soon finds herself exploring increasingly dangerous options as a way to keep both of them alive. The film is starring Willem Dafoe, Brooklyn Kimberly Prince, Bria Vinanesh, I can't say that one, <laughs> Valeria Cotto, Christopher Rivera, and Caleb Landry Jones. It is written and directed by Sean Baker and co written by Chris Burgosh. Uh, joining me for this review, if you haven't already heard him in the background, that is the sound of William Mavity. Hello, everybody. It's been a while since I've been on here. Yeah, no, it has been for sure. I, I, God, the last time we had you on for a podcast review was. Last year in the No, fall? it was Logan, I think, was my last one. Was it really? Yeah, so it's been a while. Yeah, yeah, no, it definitely has. You've certainly been missed for sure for uh, podcast reviews uh, because I really love going in-depth into uh, a film with you there, Will. Um, and for this one in particular, I've been itching at the chance to talk about it because um, there seemed to be quite a lot of buzz heading into uh, my screening for The Florida Project. I saw it this year at NYFF where uh, some other people had a chance to see it a little earlier in the year. And I have to say, on the whole... I liked it, but I can't enthusiastically say that I absolutely loved it. But I really, really, really liked it, though. Um, and I'll go into the reasons as to why. Uh, but what about you? Did this film live up to the hype? I think the hype was something that no film could live up to. Because like I know Scott Feinberg had referred to it as his favorite film of the year. I have a lot of friends online who had, you know, been going on and on about it for months. So I'm kind of in the same boat as you. But I did really like it. Yeah. It's not a condemnation of it. It's not a statement that I didn't enjoy it. But yeah, it was... I think the, well, we'll get into the reasons why a little bit more, but I think the unstructured nature, while it made sense, um, coming from the mind of a child, you know, it was very boyhood-esque, I would have liked a little bit more, and also, while I, I liked the, the performances, most of the characters were just so frustrating to me. Yeah, that actually is my chief complaint overall with the Florida Project is I love the way it was shot. I love the way it was edited. I love the performances. I love everything about this movie. But those characters are so grating and just so unlikable. And it got to a point where 
I mean, we're talking like two hours in. I was reaching a boiling point where I almost could not stand it anymore. I was ready to just write this film off completely. And then the final 10 minutes of the film happened and it just picked it right back up for me. Which is just beautiful. Oh my God, those final 10 minutes are incredible. I love the music that they use going into the final 10. You know, they've basically only had score or song present as bookends for the film. But like the only bit of scoring we had where it's like an orchestral, it builds into an orchestral rendition of Celebrate the Times. Mm-hmm. Oh my god. Yeah, I... If we're talking about the characters, um, I understand they're victims of their circumstances. Yes. Uh, She is a little kid, you know, they're bound to act in such a way, they're precocious, but I would be pissed off if some of those things happened to me, even from an adorable little kid. Oh yeah, a little kid spits on your car, you're not going to just take that line down. No, I did love that the the woman who gets her car spit on ends up becoming close friends with Brooklyn Prince's mom. Um, Brooklyn Prince's mom, you know, like, obviously, it's she's meant to be depicted in a frustrating fashion, and I liked that she very visibly cared about her daughter. But, yeah, this was... I, I don't know... Did she care about her daughter? I, I think there was a deep, genuine love she felt for her daughter. I do think... I don't was, know about that. I, mean, I, I I would think that on the surface level, there's love, but deep down, I think she's selfish, and I think she would put herself ahead of her daughter, in, in given certain situations. I, yeah, I, I think she is undeniably selfish. I mean, that that's clear, but in, she was certainly, you know, she used her daughter as well, but no, I mean, I, I think under, I, I think she did genuinely care. Oh, see, I don't. I, I think she loves her. I just don't think it's unconditional love like a mother should be. Yeah, that you, you might be on to something there. Yeah, no, because I, I think that in many ways um, that is sort of like what the heart of the film is, right, is the lengths we go to for the ones that we care about um, or even just the things that we care about. Some people might say I'm even reading too much into this movie by even saying that much because this film is just so... Um, uh, so like in a style of like cinema verite where it's almost like a documentary and we feel like we're eavesdropping on these people and there isn't really like a grander theme to talk about. Just let's just explore the lives of these people and what their day to day is like, you know? Yeah. And I think it's kind of it's similar to both Boyhood and American Honey. Those are the two American films. Honey. Yes. Yes. That is the comparison right there. That that film. OK, take American Honey. And the way that they depicted that lifestyle, the way that that film was edited, uh, the way that the camera um, followed its characters and the artistry that was found in like the mundanity of like just overall life in general. Now put that into this Florida based setting in this uh, hotel complex. And that is the Florida project. Yeah, that's I, I would that is a huge vibe I got from it, including kind of the free and unrestrained camera work. I mean, like it's. It is a childhood ver. It's no, it's the love child of Boyhood, Beasts of Southern Wild, because there's some of that in there too, and American Honey. And so, on on a certain level, I would have liked, as I mentioned before, a little bit more structure, and that was maybe something I felt with American Honey too. But at the same time, it genuinely gives you the feel, you know, as a child memories come and go there's no structure you look back in a great summer you have and it's just moments yeah and images too yeah exactly yeah and, and some and of my oh images, my what images uh they were able to capture here oh my god the uh the shot of them coming up towards the hotel with a rainbow just etched across the background was astonishing mm-hmm I mean, the colors really just like pop in this movie. Uh, you know, I, I'd be very curious to know if like the set design of the of the Magic Kingdom, as it's, as it's called, if it was really purple or if they had to paint it or what the case is, because just these locations are just so vivid and so vibrant. They really just pop off of the screen, you know, in the in the manner in which uh, they chose to shoot the film. And what was it? I think they shot it in, I want to say 35 millimeter. But Yeah, I, th- I think they shot it on film. Yeah. 
Which, and it worked, and then also the costume design, it's not like they had to design anything special, but they had, in every single shot, you know, matched up the wardrobe impeccably to uh, emphasize whatever the surrounding area was. So there's a shot where they're going in between two houses, uh, there's a greenhouse on either side, I think, like kind of a pastel green, and there's green grass, and you can tell that they had chosen for all the scenes building up to them going to this house, that this abandoned house they're going to explore, had chosen the wardrobe so that for this one shot, you know, everything would be perfectly color-coordinated. And it's it, that kind of effort throughout the film, despite what I assume was a very small budget, is impressive because it's like Moonlight last year. They use colors in their sets and their costumes so well that it can make up for the fact that they don't have a big budget to spend on lighting and just the general DP work. Mm-hmm. It's, a ni- it's a nice trick. It pays off very well. I agree. Uh, Brooklyn Kimberly Prince, where would she rank for you in terms of child performances you've seen this year? She's very... Oh, this year. She's very good. Um... She might be my favorite this year. I'm trying to think who else I would have. There's the girl from Logan, obviously. Yeah, Daphne Keene. Daphne Keene, yeah, who's extremely good as well. Who are some of the other big child performances this year? Uh, there's, um, oh God, I can't remember her name, but the girl from Gifted. I haven't seen that yet. Ah, uh, uh, I mean, then there's um, the girl with all the gifts. Right. Oh my God, she was fa- uh, she was fantastic as well. You know, there's definitely a couple. But my thing and what I'm kind of getting at here with. Uh, Brooklyn, uh, uh, Brooklyn, uh, Brooklyn, Kimberly Prince is that I felt like half of her performance was her uh, screeching and just shrieking and yelling and ah, you know, like I, I almost every single scene that's all I heard coming out of her mouth. Yes, but to an extent, I think that is kind of how six-year-olds behave. You know, they're having fun. They're outside. They scream a lot. Yeah, but and like I was saying before, I don't want to make it sound like I'm I'm crapping all over her performance in any way, shape, or form. I'm I'm not because you know a lot of times we think that uh, child performances, how much of that is the director manipulating them and so on and so forth, and um, how much of it is them just pointing the camera and like capturing a, a moment of just them just being themselves. Is it so much a performance? The final ten minutes of the movie, as I alluded to before. Oh my god, she fucking... Because I, I saw it with my girlfriend. She's like, yeah, I've totally cried exactly like that when I was a kid. Like, that. that's that's a—that's an actual performance that she's putting in there. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, the, and it, it, that, it was amazing, amazing work. Oh my god. No, because I had... You know, I had heard all this praise, people predicting her to even crack into either the actress or to be category fraud into the supporting actress lineups. And for most of the movie, I was like... Okay. I mean, she's good. She feels real like a kid, but I was wondering where all that talk was coming from. But her last 10 minutes, particularly like the last four minutes, are holy shit. Yeah, when she goes to like her best friend's uh, door uh, to yeah. talk to her and it's it just it, it just breaks your heart. That's probably the best child acting I've seen since Jacob Tremblay in Room. Yeah, that, uh, that moment it very there. well could be for sure. And it's those moments like that where Sean Baker really, really focuses in on the narrative. Um, That's where I felt like the film was at its strongest. Um, These quote-unquote memories, almost as you you called them before, where the film is showing, okay, here's them getting ice cream. Okay, now let's cut to them just walking down the street. Okay, now let's cut to them now in the meadow. Let's cut to them. And there is no story being told. It's just, hey, let's just show these moments. While those images are really beautiful to look at, I was starting to lose interest in the story overall. So when they um, actually brought us back to uh, her mother or to Willem Dafoe's character, and there were actual like stakes being raised in terms of uh, Haley's behavior, and when was that going to finally blow up? Like we know that the pot is boiling. When is it going to explode? We know it's coming, but those were the moments that I found the most interesting because of the tension that was being built through up. And it leads to this climax at the end, as you were saying before, where it does pay off. And like I was saying before, it, it just rectified so much about the film for me that I uh, previously had trouble with. Yeah, and I would argue that 
because it had more of a narrative to its ending um, than American Honey, it ultimately became a more satisfying film. Because, as you said, they had laid the pieces nicely uh, for this, you know, the, the climax basically involving her relationship with her mother and her mother's behavior. Right. Yeah, I, I, I thought the ending payoff was nice. I just, I was, I was frustrated in the middle. And although it was necessary for her mother to be the way she was for the end of the film to work, that was also relentlessly frustrating to me. You know, like, I, I wanted I wanted to reach through the screen and, like, chastise her, you know? Yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. No, there's a part of you that wants to... Uh, uh, <laughs> yeah, she's, she's a piece of work. Let's put it that way. Um, let's talk about Willem Dafoe. Oh, yeah. A lot of buzz around Willem Dafoe in this movie. Um, I was a little underwhelmed at first... But the idea of, okay, the reason why people are talking about this in terms of, you know, an Oscar potentially for Willem Dafoe and Best Supporting Actor is because I think it's a combination of the right time in his career with the right film at the right time. Yeah, I think it's it's the classic career win. You know, it's, it's Christopher Plummer in Beginners or uh, Jack Palance in City Slickers. It's not so much about the, the performance, it's about the career. And he, what a career. It's, it would yeah. be nice if the iconic villain wins his Oscar for playing a good guy for like the second time in his career. And I think that's what makes the performance work. I'm not saying it's a bad performance by any means because it's totally not. But what makes it work actually is that he's contrasted against these loud at obnoxious characters and here he is being warm fuzzy and just a good-hearted person you know that's ultimately trying to do the right thing and i think the scene that does it for most and i think the scene where uh that probably plays maybe for his uh oscar highlight reel is probably the scene where he does finally lose his shit on uh Haley. If I had to take a guess it was such a long time coming oh yeah i mean she just she pushes him to that moment, to that breaking point. Um, and you start to wonder if he will ever get there. And when he does get there, it's like, oh, man, OK. Defoe is like really, uh, you know, OK, Defoe is screaming, <laughs> but you know, there are, and he's scary when he screams. But there's three scenes, I would argue, that are that could potentially be in his Oscar reel. And it's three scenes that elevate this above, you know, just a general mentor performance. Yes. One is the scene where a potential pervert comes to the hotel. Oh, that's so good. Yeah. That is a great scene. The way he handles that, you know, calmly taking charge, but like solving the situation and then unloading is a potential Oscar scene. The one you mentioned is potential Oscar scene. And then one I think really, really is a impressive bit of acting that people haven't really talked about much is where Macon Blair shows up for like 30 seconds and yes, Macon Blair is in this movie. Uh, he shows up for like 30 seconds to come receive something he believes was stolen. And the way Defoe comes and handles that scene, I thought was impeccable because yes. he's so threatening yet also comforting um, and charming at the same time fascinating bit of work. He's a man of action. He takes action. And you can tell that he has a grasp on almost every single situation that's thrown at him. But I would actually argue there, Will, where you where you think he's in command of those uh, scenes that you mentioned there before, the one with Megan Blair, the one with the pervert. I would argue that in the final 10 minutes of the film, when he's confronted with a situation where he thinks he knows how to handle it, and he's trying to do the best that he can, but you could see that it's eating him up inside to do what it is that is ultimately being done. And I think that bit of acting, it's very small, but I think that is a – they won't use it for the showcase reel because it's it's you know there's spoilers involved, but I think that's what seals the deal for him. Yeah, I, I, I would – yeah, I would absolutely agree 
his his final few minutes in the film and the fact that that Sean Baker chose to continue to follow Defoe, you know, even as he like goes outside and takes a smoke during those sequences, is a testimony to the fact that he is very aware of how much nuance Defoe is showing off in those moments. Yeah, I, I that was an interesting payoff for the film of having him as a man of supreme competence throughout the movie, and then finally, when everything else comes to a head, he's in a situation where he messes up, kind of. Yeah. And yeah, I, I his his you know attempts to control the situation and talk with Brooklyn Prince in those moments were extremely endearing. You're right. That is the fourth scene. It's not as showy as the other other three, but that's the fourth scene that really kind of seals potential Oscar for him. Yeah. So since it's like it, it, it's more along the lines of a performance like Mahershala Ali gave in Moonlight last year, where it's subtle. Um, there is a lot going on underneath the surface. Same with the year before with Bridge of Spies. Like really, it's very in line. The last, if he wins, those are three very similar performances. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, I, I totally agree with you on that. And then finally, the last thing I want to just touch on before we get to final thoughts, uh, grades out of 10 and Oscar potential here, is um, the very, very final sequence without revealing exactly what it is. How did you like uh, Baker's um, How did you like Baker's decision to go back to using iPhone? I mean, I assume it was by necessity. Um, oh, no, it totally was. Yeah. <laughs> when you read about how they got that shot, it totally was. <laughs> yeah, I, I think it needed to happen. You know, like, it's it's not necessarily is aesthetically pleasing, but it kind of worked in that it gave the entire sequence a dreamlike feel. And I think that's good for, like, how you would recall childhood memories. It would probably feel kind of hazy and dreamlike. And on top of that, you know, maybe it's, we can't spoil too much, but it's something that maybe Brooklyn Prince's character wanted to happen and dreamed about happening in the past, and it's finally coming to fruition. So, yeah, I, obviously it was by necessity, it was a bit jarring at first, but I I really like the final sequence. It's beautiful, and it was certainly a distinctive way to end the film. Yeah, I think it's completely memorable, and it's, uh, in my opinion, the perfect way to end the film. Like, literally perfect. I could not think of a better ending. And as I said earlier, the music was spectacular there. It was, you know, a orchestral version of Celebrate the Times, basically. Yeah, also considering, too, there's not any music, you know, preceding that for... Like, what, the entire runtime of the film up until yeah, the, 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 the opening only credits? Other music, yeah, the opening credits were the last time we had music. So, it, yes, I love yeah. that. So, you know, celebrating good times of childhood memories, I suppose. <laughs> um, righty. Great out of 10. Oscar potential. Final thoughts. Take it away. Okay. I would pro- We can't do point fives anymore, can we? Anymore? We never have. <laughs> All right. So I'm going to give it an eight. Okay. You know, the characters did grate on me a little bit, and I do wish there was a bit more plot, but I understand why both of those things existed. Uh, I thought the handling of small-budget cinematography was great, and generally very real performances. As for Oscar potential, people clearly really care about this movie. It's generated a lot of passion. I am still not convinced, ultimately, that it gets in for much more than Defoe. I think it stands a good chance at a picture nomination, but I think screenplay is too packed. Unless they category fraud Brooklyn Prince into supporting actress, I don't think she's getting in. I think direct Baker is probably six or seven in director right now. So I think there is a decent chance that this just ends up with a Willem Defoe nomination and potentially win as a way to acknowledge the film a best picture nomination would not shock me though i don't think any of the texts will get in you know like i think the editing may be too unorthodox with the editor's branch and the cinematography will probably show up at a few critics awards but not get a nomination what do you think i actually 100 percent agree with you i have i have literally nothing else to say <laughs> You, no, you you literally said everything. There was a, there was one thing though. Uh, there was a point um, I had during the movie where I thought to myself, could Bria um, 
I'm going to get her name wrong again. Vinate? I I'm hope I'm saying it right. Bria Vinate, who plays uh, Haley, um, uh, Mooney's mom. Could she be a surprise contender and come out of nowhere? She was very good, and obviously she felt very authentic. I tend to say no, but of yes, course. I think there is a world where she does, and at the very least, like the cinematography, I think she'll get several mentions from critics groups. Yeah, I, I, I'm with you on that, and I, I, I begin to wonder if people watch the film, if they say, oh my god, who is this actress? She's extraordinary. You know what I mean? You know, I was I was looking. They found her on Instagram, apparently, um, largely because of all the weed paraphernalia she had in her Instagram. Oh, jeez. <laughs> Yeah, she was. I, yeah, I mean, so obviously, it's it was a very real performance. We'll say that from what I've heard. <laughs> you you gotta love this this style of filmmaking. You, you just gotta love it. Uh, I mean, yeah, almost everyone is. I assume playing essentially just an extension of their life. Yeah, which was great. Yeah. All right. Yeah. So for me, uh, I'm going just one down. I'm going with a seven out of ten, but I am also in a point five world. Really, at a at a seven point five. Um, I would I would I would round it down though only because um, th- those characters I just can't I can't see audience members connecting with those characters um, espe- even with the payoffs at the end um, I understand that there are more sophisticated audience members um, and critics and so on and so forth who are obviously eating this stuff up but out of respect for those who are not those people um, and just want to go to the movies to be entertained. I could totally see how this movie would annoy them, um, would make them angry, and ultimately would make them shrug when it's all over and say, who who the hell cares? Uh, and with that said, I think that The Florida Project is, despite that, still one of the better films I've seen this year. And uh, for all the elements that you said before, direction, performances, the emotional honesty of its story, the cinematography, uh, the, just those colors, man, those colors are like etched into my brain. Um, they were just so, so, so bright and so vivid and just really, really pleasing to look at. Uh, yeah, uh, you know, in the Oscar potential, I'm, I'm with you on everything that you said before. So there we go. And Will, where can they find you on the Internet? You can find me on Twitter at Mavericks Movies. And you can find me at Next Best Picture. We are now going to be heading over to our interview with the co-writer and producer of The Florida Project, Chris Burgosh. Let's take a listen for that. You are listening to the Next Best Picture podcast, where right now, after listening to our review for The Florida Project, we are now being joined by the co-writer and producer of the film, Chris Bergosh. Chris, how are you today? Oh, good. How are you? Thanks for having me. Oh, we're doing pretty phenomenal over here, all things considered. Uh, we're right now in the thick of uh, NYFF right now, and uh, I'm actually traveling back and forth between Manhattan for that and the Hamptons out on eastern Long Island for the Hamptons Film Festival. So, Oh, yeah, you know, uh, we, we have the film there, and uh, uh, yeah. actually Brie uh, Venate, who plays our Haley, is going to be there as well, and I think um, perhaps some others, Brooklyn uh, Prince will be there. Oh, wow, I didn't know that. That's awesome. If I get a chance, I'm going to try and catch it again, actually. Um, I definitely want to give the film a rewatch. Well, thank you. You know, when we when we write these things, Sean and I always say that we want to write them for the second viewing, even knowing full well that many pe- most people probably won't even see it again. But we want to give the the people who do some new new ways to look at the film when you watch it again. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, this is actually now your third feature-length film that you've made with Sean Baker, uh, who uh, co-wrote the film and directed it. And uh, can you tell us about like how your relationship started and how it's evolved over the course of these films? Oh, sure. Yeah, we we were jokingly referring to it as our little friendship trilogy because um, Starlet, obviously, a friendship between um, an eighty-five-year-old woman and a twenty-one-year-old girl, and then you have Tangerine, obviously, the the friendship there between um, uh, Cindy and Alexandra, and now here you have a double friendship between. Jancy and Mooney, the two little girls, and Mooney and her mom, Haley. But anyway, uh, I met Sean at NYU, and we were in film school together there, working on each other's projects. And uh, then after NYU ended, 
um, you know, we were off doing our own little missions and, and, um, Sean co-created Greg the Bunny, uh, with Dan Milano and Spencer Chinoy. And I was always sort of the, the fourth Ghostbuster, you know, or I was the Ernie Hudson. He's a Ghostbuster, but he wasn't on the poster. And, and I was always there helping with, uh, with that. And Greg the Bunny had a lot of incarnations. It was on New York Public Access. Then it was on Independent Film Channel. Then it went to Fox. Then it went back to IFC. Uh, and then to MTV. Wow. And then after the MT- yeah after the MTV version, that was a spinoff called War and the Ape, where uh, it was about uh, this puppet ape named Warren making his comeback. It was a sort of like a fake reality show. But that only lasted one season on MTV. And then in a, in a weird way, everything happens for a reason, because when Sean and I were working on that together is when we started brewing uh, Starling in our heads. And uh, so that, you know, led, led to our first feature, as you mentioned. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome to hear. And I mean, the, the work has certainly evolved uh, since then. I mean, Tangerine was a uh, very very great success for you guys uh in many ways um it was actually the first time i had heard uh, about you guys and then i checked out starlet uh right afterwards and now with the florida project um where did the origin in the writing stage come for the florida project what 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 inspired you guys to tell this story well here's the thing we were writing starlet and i just want to backtrack a little bit not to not to be too boring but but starlet actually only was given birth like i said we were working on this mtv show and on some of the episodes trying to appeal to a male a young male demographic we'd have sun casting and cameos from people but we also cast um adult film stars uh and uh when they were on set you know they would be eating lunch and they they were nothing like we we were expecting them to be maybe uh, all our preconceived notions went out the window and you just find yourself eating with them talking about the most mon- mundane topics like like I remember talking uh, to this one girl about just like bed bugs and how bed bugs were like taking over Vegas and you got to be careful and check, and check the mattresses. And so that's when Sean and I started thinking, you know, um, let's just do a, a day in the life type movie uh, about one of these girls and not even focus on, on her job, just what, what she does when she's not working. So anyway, um, you know, then that led to Tangerine. And then uh, the reason why I bring up Starlet is because it was right around the time that we were writing Starlet, which was in the spring of 2011, that um, I was in Florida visiting my mom, who had relocated there from New Jersey. And I would, you know, I'm, I'm a Disney dweeb. I, I love Disney parks so much. And so whenever <laughs> I would go there, I obviously would, you know, borrow her car and go to the parks. And even sometimes just, I mean, it sounds sometimes a little weird to people, but sometimes when I go alone, I don't even ride attractions. I just like to be in the environment and I, I take my MacBook and I just find a place, a little spot and just start to write anything and people watch and just try to get inspired um, from being in that, you know, in environment. And so um, I was driving back home to her house and, and I noticed uh, children in one of the motel parking lots playing, I think it might've been hide and seek or wiffle ball. And, um, and every t- and then you know I, I would just continue on home. But every time I drove past there, you know, you would see them, and they they didn't strike me as tourists. Um, it was clear that they that they were living there, and that's when it came to my attention. You know, I had I, I have to admit that I didn't know about this um, situation of of what you know was even referred to as the hidden homeless. You know, and then uh, I started doing a little bit more research, some Google searching here and there, found out that this was a problem happening all across the country mm. and uh and and just something really tug on my heartstrings about the fact that that they were there growing up in the shadow of what is like quote unquote the most magical place on earth and in the shadow of cinderella castle and it's, it's this juxtaposition that i called sean or emailed sean and said you know i think there's a story here i'm not sure what it is yet but you know um through the point of view of these children and sean actually you know same boat like he he had always wanted to make a kids film and and he he's a huge fan of little rascals and so this kind of uh was a he, he yeah it's true and he never he never really found a way into a story that maybe we haven't seen before so this was the birth of that where that that is what made his eyes light up you know it's it's interesting too because these are real people and i was really struck by how authentic the performances were not just from actors but also, too, from, like, background uh, characters, extras within the film as well. Uh, they all really, like, work to seamlessly immerse you into this world that you and Sean are portraying. And I was curious uh, what it was like 
you know, as a producer, uh, trying to work with uh, the locals in the, within the area and getting them to participate in the project. Were they forthcoming? Was there a hesitation or? Oh, yeah. Great question, because, you know, that's the whole thing for us. Research is everything. We, we take a journalistic approach is what Sean has referred to it as. You know, for me, I just think like that's how, you know, every everyone should write. I mean, I, I don't I'm not you know, sort of from that world. And so I, if I'm going to be telling a story from within that world, I must immerse myself into it. And we go down there and do these research trips. We, over the course of two years, uh, we, we probably went down there a dozen times and sometimes for a week, 10 days and just go not, it's, it's partially location scouting, but it's also just going to the motels and just trying to talk to people and, and just explaining what we're all about and what we're trying to do. Obviously some people chase us off the property, you know, yeah. um, cause we're, we're trying to, we're trying to talk to, you know, parents that are there. And we're also trying to talk to the people who work at the motels mm-hmm. and, um, you know, some people say, you know, if you're not a guest, get, get the hell off our property. That kind yeah. of thing. It's the nature of the job, right? <laughs> yeah. But, but many, many just greet us with open arms and then take them out to lunch, start talking and not really even asking them anything, just sort of like getting to know people about like what, what, uh, is their life and what, what led them to where they are right now. And, um, you know, you hear some tragic tales and it's great. It's great because, um, well, I don't want to say it's that's a poor choice of words, but it's great to get to know people because you you're able to learn about things that you could never have even anticipated, and it's 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 sort of a it's a hard thing to do because you know you you you're holding back tears sometimes too, and and um, well, it's a peek into the human condition, really. Yeah, I mean, it's just it's just a, it's an insane situation, and so basically, um, that informs the story. Is where I was going with that. Uh, we, yeah. You know, we learn we learn things about. Uh, there's a sequence in the movie. I don't want to give away too many spoilers for people out there, but uh, the, you know, we learned from our research trips that you ha- you're made to vacate the premises one day out of every month so as to not establish residency there, mm. and and it's it's this kind of silly thing where you have to clear your whole all your belongings out of your room and get rid of it and leave the property for, for 24 hours. And then you just come back in and, um, where do you go? You know? So that, that was something that sort of, uh, struck us as we have to work this in somehow. And that's very unique too, because it's not something that you would think of often. Cause I mean, <laughs> who of us has checked into a hotel for more than 30 days, right? Yeah, that's true. And you know, um, the, the, the motel, uh, managers and whatnot were also very friendly. We met this one man named John Manning at uh, a, a place that's not there anymore. I think it was called America's Best, uh, and uh, you know that that was one of the, the bigger um, motels that that was primarily uh, you know pe- people living there in that situation. And he was the, the most incredible because he he once. Well, not at, at first, Sean and I just walked onto the property and there were children playing in the playground and we were just looking for, you know, anybody that worked there to talk to. And, you know, he must've seen us right away on those monitors because he came out there with a drill in his hand, ready just to sort of be prepared in case we were some sort of, you know, threat. And first thing he did was walk us away from those kids. And this is exactly what inspired that. You've seen the film, right? Oh yeah. Yeah. That scene is fantastic. Yeah, this is what inspired that scene uh, that I'm taught with uh, with the mysterious man that wanders onto the property. Uh, who, by the way, I, we named him Charlie Coachman because in Pinocchio, the coachman comes to take away kids to Pleasure oh, Island and oh, turn oh, them geez. into Jack. <laughs> <laughs> of, we tried to work in a lot of little Disney Disney references wherever we could that that probably would go undetected. But anyway, so um, you know, uh, he was amazing. Because once he realized, you know, what we were up to was uh, was was legit, um, he took us in his office and we just started chatting and hearing his stories and his point of view about uh, being in this situation. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, you know, it's it's great. You just you just have to be honest with people, and and you never know where what wonderful resources it will lead to to tell these stories in in ways that we would never have been able to. Yeah. Uh, you talked about location scouting there for a bit, and um, I was really impressed with the overall 
visual design of the film. A lot of the colors really pop when when you watch it. And most of that's coming from the place deemed the Magic Castle in the film. And I was curious if that setting uh, exists exactly as you shot it or if you guys had to, like, dress it up at all um, and, you know, change it a bit. Yeah, the Magic Castle has been there. Uh, well, it was, let me tell you, it was there since 1996. I stayed there in 96 because I went, I used to go down to Disney World with my friends and we would do this uh, thing where we would, you know, we would want to stay at a, at a nice Disney resort, uh, but they're very expensive. And so we would stay like one or two nights at a Disney resort. And then for the rest of the week, we would stay at, at some, some place that was more inexpensive. So on that trip, we loved, I came across the Magic Castle. Um, which is you know, right outside the property of Disney. Disney World, I think, is uh, uh, 43 square miles, I think, or 40. Yeah, I should know this. I'm sorry. <laughs> I haven't had, uh, having a coffee today. But at, right outside um, is where Route 192 is, where our film takes place. And uh, that's where the, uh, lots of these um, hotels are. And I used to, uh, the reason why I wanted to stay there is because of what it looks like. It's exactly like the film, where it's just this bright purple and the yeah. castle. And it's just so cool that uh, that's why we chose that one. And so, uh, the reason why I'm saying this is it's it's looked that way um, for 20 years. But I mean, maybe, you know, they've given it a couple of fresh coats of paint since then. But we did, Stefanik Youth was our production designer, and she, you know, um, uh, made it look a little bit more lived in and worn in and lots of, um, you know, just put a cigarette butt uh, here or there and dress it up like that and you know, lots of uh, laundry hanging over the banisters. It doesn't look, if you were to go there right now, it doesn't look quite so um, battle damaged. Yeah, run down, so to speak. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but it, but it's, uh, but the owners there were amazing to let us shoot there. You know, we didn't shut down the motel. It was still like a fully operating motel when we shot, and we just couldn't get in the way of their business. But other than that, they let us have, uh, you know, free reign to, to, to get all those shots that we needed and set up the, the equipment and, they were they were wonderful to do that. I, I wonder, you know, I hope if people actually stay there. Like, if I saw this film and I wasn't involved in this film, I, you know, I'm 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 a film geek, so I'd want to like go there and stay in room three twenty three, which is where Haley uh, lives. And I, I, if I had that motel, I would like make it a Florida Project themed room or something. Put put some posters up. And <laughs> it's going to be a tourist attack, attraction now uh, <laughs> for people outside of Disney. Um, you know, it's interesting because we're talking about uh, shooting in a real set, um, and we're also talking about uh, shooting in an area that's close to Disney. And you guys, or at least Sean, chose to shoot the final sequence of the film on the iPhone in Disney World. Oh, yeah, you've done your done your research. iPhone 6, uh, 6S Plus, which was what the what, latest yep. was at the time. Supposedly, from what I've also read... Without their knowledge or consent, um, as the producer on this film, has this come back in any way, shape, or form for you guys? Well, you know what? I mean, look, uh, Sean, Sean reverted to his guerrilla filmmaking techniques that uh, that he had always utilized um, in the past, kind of like you know, like you mentioned on Tangerine with the five S, and um, you know, we had talked about. Well, let me back up. First things first, we, that ending was always the ending. You know, this, we started coming up with this idea in 2011, uh, when I, after seeing the articles that I mentioned and talking to Sean about it, I wrote up this little treatment, well, not even a treatment, just a little two page, three page summary of what this movie might be. And lots changed since then, obviously. Um, it went through a lot of evolution, um, as all scripts do. The one thing that always stayed the same was the ending. And we always knew that it was going to go to that ending. And back then it was the pipe dream. You know, when, when they say, um, when you're writing, don't, you know, don't limit yourself or block yourself with like what you can or can't do, just put it down. And so we weren't even really thinking that would ever be an ending. We would maybe even be able to uh, pull off, so to speak, but it never changed. It was always there. And then when it finally came time to shooting it, um, I, while they were shooting, there were times where I was simultaneously going out on these little missions to try to figure out how to duplicate Main Street because, uh, you know, you need to just figure these things out. And there were lots of places that I found that had like maybe the same bricks, the same type of bricks or asphalt that Main Street would have. And there was talk about like, okay, well, what if we just shoot it all in close-ups and just throw down some like uh, half-melted Mickey Mouse ice cream bar here and a balloon? 
balloon that had popped there and try to just dress it up with uh, park paraphernalia that, that wouldn't get us into any kind of trouble. But it just wasn't going to work uh, the way we, we designed it. And it just needed to... Uh, it just needed to be the way of things. And so Sean, yeah, Sean had to just uh, revert to the old Sean Baker guerrilla filmmaking style with that one. Well, I'm glad that he did because, in my opinion, the ending is perfect. And I'm glad that you guys kept it for as long as you did. And it was always the ending because I can't think of a better way uh, oh, for thanks. that film to end. Uh, it's it's just beautiful. That means so much. But here's the thing that I should say, too, is that um, – you know, when the when the movie was going to, we were so lucky to have gotten into Cannes. I mean, that that was a dream come true. But one of the things that like was getting stabbed in the gut was when you, you read articles out there, and it's just like Sean Baker does is going to do the dark side of Disney, and I was like, no, this is not at all what it is. And you know, they ha- obviously haven't seen the film yet, and it makes for a catchy headline. But so I get it. But it was killing me because I just didn't. I mean, this movie, I wrote this. Like in a weird way, I know it's going to sound silly because what you know you've seen the film, but uh, I wrote it approaching it like I was writing a Disney movie, and I'm talking about like the you know the 1960s live action movies that Walt was producing at the time. You know, themes of family, themes of friendship, and themes of imagination. Mm. And so that's why it hurt me so much. And I was just like, these people suck. <laughs> it's like that's not what this movie is. And I didn't want Disney to think that either. If they ever got word of this movie, you know, this is coming from a place that this is not, you know, Disney has actually helped the community. Disney's giving money and trying to solve the problem uh, as well. And, uh, you know, it, it's, it's actually, so it's coming from a place that I think Walt would be, uh, happy with. Yeah. <laughs> Wherever you Um, I was hoping you could actually help me uh, settle a debate between me and my friend Will that we were having before. Um, and, you know, this goes uh, down to what you were talking about before about, like, you know, family values and uh, representing, you know, something that Disney would be proud of. And I think there are two ways to interpret the characters in this film. I believe hmm. that if Haley had the choice of putting herself before Mooney, she would. Uh, where my friend Will argues that Haley would always put her daughter uh, first before her. Uh, which of the Ooh. two do you believe? You know, let me tell you something. I love the debate. I mean, that's why we love writing these things and keeping a lot. We don't answer, you know, people ask us like, well, where's, where's Mooney's dad and what happened to him? And, we, yeah. you know, we don't always feel like we have to spell everything out and we like to leave a little bit for your own interpretation. Hmm, that is an interesting question. I mean, I hate to break it to you, but I think I might be leaning a little bit more toward Will because let me tell you why. That last scene in oh, this is we have a spoiler warning for Yeah, yeah, that's out. fine. I'll make sure there's a spoiler warning before this. Spoiler no warning, uh the last the last when she do it goes to the buffet with Mooney and and we're watching Mooney eat and then uh, you know, we cut to Haley. You know, Haley knows that's that's the last time she's gonna see her. Yeah. Um, well at least for a while. And she knows they're coming. And, and she, uh, she's having one last adventure with her daughter and she's, you know, going, she knows what needs to happen now, but she might not, you know, she definitely doesn't like it, but I think she's, uh, being very selfless. Yeah. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, and it's, there's a great deal of humanity found within those characters as a result of that. Um, I, I, I've heard from some people, including including myself at times, like I, I could see how people would find those characters to be uh, grating at times, you know, and yeah. hard, very, very hard to relate to. But there is that degree of humanity within them that shines through in those very, very small and tiny moments. Um, I think a moment like that, like you were describing there, when she's having that final uh, meal with her, is a great example of that. And it's it's just it's beautiful and it's heartbreaking at the same time. I think we I think I, oh, I was going to just add to that. Thank you for that. I mean, we we try we we don't like to make it easy for the audience. We like we like flawed characters. And if you just look at everything from the puppets in, in Greg Bunny, from the character of Melissa uh, in Starlet, and from the you know. Um, Especially think about Cindy and Tangerine. If anybody's seen that, you know, like Cindy is terrible sometimes. I mean, that yeah. poor man, Bob on the food line, he must have waited an hour to get that, that free meal. And Cindy just is asking him where she could find Dinah. And then she throws that 
that meal all over the ground. What did he do to deserve that? So we like to just, you know, we don't want to make sugar-coated characters at all. We then challenge the audience to, and then, and then it's, it's almost a risk because if we could still get people on board by the end, then that's very satisfying for us. Nice. And if we don't, you know, we don't, we don't, but, 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 uh, what I'm saying is, I guess that's a common thread now that you've mentioned it about, yeah. uh, potentially grading traits. Yeah. Uh, I'm sticking with the characters. I want to talk a little bit about the casting for a second as well, in particular the child stars. Um, what was it like working with them and also having to shoot around probably uh, what I what I assume is um, their uh, shooting uh, limitations as far as their schedules are concerned? Right, child labor laws. And, you know, my goodness, though we are so lucky to have found those, those kids. I mean, especially, you know, well, I should also mention that Valeria Coto who plays Chancy in the film, mm-hmm. uh, Sean discovered in, in Target, and he was just doing uh, some shopping that night, went up to her mom, Eve, gave her his card, and uh, just said, you know, we're doing this thing, you should come in to do audition. And, uh, you know, she, she we already was, were looking at Brooklyn at the time for Mooney, and you want to find, you know, visual contrasts and people who might look... Uh, you know, like a good pair on screen. So, um, uh, she, she actually turned out to be five and then they actually, you actually get uh, two, two less hours with them per day when they're five, but Sean had to sort of convince everybody that she would be worth it to, to work the schedule, um, around four. And she was, she was, and then, absolutely. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and, and, oh, thank you. And yeah, she's great. And, and, you know, I love it when she, um, well, I'll, I'll, that's a whole other topic, but, uh, Brooklyn, you know, she had, she's, has been acting since she was two and she came in and just blew our minds. She actually auditioned. We would, we would double up sometimes and even triple up with the kids. There were a lot coming in and, and, um, we had some local casting calls and we actually even cast in one of the motels in the area. And so they came in, uh, Brooklyn and Christopher Rivera, who plays Udi, were in together and it was just so funny. We didn't even tell them to do anything yet. And Christopher was uh, was like, okay, I got to psych myself up. I'm going to do some push-ups before we start. And he starts doing push-ups on the floor. And then Brooklyn's there, and she's like, well, yeah, me too. I'm going to do some squats. And then they're just it's having this hilarious uh, exercise session right before us. We're laughing already before we even started the audition. And, and, um, and yeah, the rest is history there. We, you know, the thing about the kids is we saw so many great kids. But the, the thing for Sean's films is we, you know, we have a full script, 102 pages at one point, even it had to be cut because we were, it was going to be a three hour movie. Yeah. With the way Sean wanted to shoot it, he wanted to have breathing room and feel like you were spending a whole summer with these characters. And so it's very loose. And, but the thing about it is, is, um, improv skills. See, they have to learn their lines, but then once they do learn those lines, they can sort of unlearn them and, and make it their own and, but still stick to that, to that sort of essential, you know, get, get from A to B in the scene and keep that story moving. Um, and a lot of kids don't, don't have, um, maybe the, the, the know how to do that so well. So, you know, we would, we would get the kids in the room and we would do sort of little scenarios like, okay, there's some 12 year olds in the pool, but now it's your turn and you, that's your pool. So you got to go kick them out go and just to see how they were going to you know kick the kids out and and then other times we would uh ask them questions like what their favorite disney princess was and why and you would hear oh my gosh there was one girl who's actually in the movie in a little scene because she she made us tear up she she comes into the audition and we ask her what her favorite princess is and she says rapunzel and i say why what do you like about her and i'm almost going to tear up just thinking about it because she was just like well you know um, she's all alone in her tower and her mom is kind of mean to her. <laughs> and like, um, you know, I, uh, she doesn't get to go play with friends and, and, and um, just like kind of sad. Um, so she's in the movie, uh, you know, in a small scene, but, uh, but yeah, so that's the thing it, you, you need to get kids who are great actors and who have the improv skills to be able to, uh, use their imaginations they're, they're they were phenomenal uh, brooklyn is just like that those final 10 minutes just killed me and i think it's one of the best child performances i've seen this year or, or maybe the best I, it's really fantastic oh my god it killed, it killed us all when when she does the last moments uh you know the ones i'm talking about you know uh that was one take and it's just unbelievable how she just turned it on wow uh, I mean, we 
you weren't even all prepared for it. I mean, we, it was scripted that, you know, that that emotional stuff is going to happen, but you just don't know how, how you're going to get it. And, um, it, Sean actually was talking about this in a Q and a we did last night where, um, you know, they were getting ready to roll and Valeria still was not in her character. Fancy yet. She's just kind of hanging out waiting for them to be ready. And she was making small talk with Brooklyn because they, they had become friends, you know? And so she was like, oh, you know, are we going to have a sleepover this weekend or playtime? Oh. And, <laughs> and, 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 but Brooklyn was like, Jancy, um, I'm, I'm, I need to cry soon, so I, just, I have to just concentrate. <laughs> and then, like, Stop. and then they rolled it, and and, <laughs> and so she, yeah, she's such a little professional. She's only six years old, and she knew exactly where the character needed to be, and and, and understood all. It was incredible. And then, and then when Sean yelled "cut," you know, um, the whole crew ran up to her and gave her hugs, and uh, it, it was pretty pretty amazing to see that happen. Yeah, considering that you know we, we didn't know we what we were gonna get or the extent of how how far it would be willem defoe i think gives one of the best performances of his career in this film and oh wow it's a testament to the career that he's had and i think it's mostly because of how he is contrasted against the other characters in the film you know where everyone is loud. Uh, some might say obnoxious, vulgar. He's in control. He's civil. He's warm. Man, tell me what it was like working with Willem Dafoe, man. <laughs> yeah, incredible. And that's that's right there. You know, one of our missions when we when we start these things, we have these like bullet. Sean and I have these bullet points of things that could be technical, or it could be just just thoughts or rules for the movie. And one of the rules for, for the character of, of Bobby that Willem plays is that, you know, I want to write a, um, if we're going to get Willem on board, you know, let's, let's be a Willem that we, that I've never seen, or, or just, you know, we've seen him not always play a villain, you know, but, but, but I just want to see, I want to do something different with Willem and something interesting for him to play. And I think he brought so much to it that we couldn't even think about putting on the page, just this warmth, like you said, and, and, um, Remember I mentioned that guy, John, who was one of the managers of that hotel with the drill, you know, he, he was one of our amazing allies and just being a great resource of information into this world. And, and Willem actually hung out with him for a few days. He got to the, down to Florida to shoot about a week early and did, you know, did some, uh, did some spray tan, uh, to get into that Florida headspace. And, uh, it's, it's also interesting when you get a vet, seasoned vet like Willem um, and you put him with first timers mm. because I think that, um, you know, he, they, their sort of wide eyed uh, enthusiasm to be acting rubs off on him. And then his uh, talent and expertise in the craft will rub off on them to create this like explosion. Yeah. Each, each sort of uh, influences each other. And uh, you get something really kind of cool. And he was such a great help, too. Like, uh, we found this out recently that he was not in a, like, a preachy, lectury teacher way. But he was just uh, giving Bria and some of the others, uh, you know, just lots of tips, lots of great tips for... Uh, Being a leader on set, really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because, you know, there you know, sometimes, you know, you could be intimidating as a first-timer. Bria, Bria had never acted. She was uh, discovered by Sean on Instagram. And and it was definitely a real risk and a bold move on Sean's part because I you know I never questioned Sean's casting at this point he's always been spot on and when he knows he knows but there are those questions that you think about because when you when you make a movie you have this duty to your financiers to you know do everything you can to sort of get that money back and they always want the the name the big name stars and we had been tossing around a lot of big name stars to just go out to for, for Haley, for the character of Haley. And just like think of every 20 to 25 year old sort of A-lister that you can think of. And their names were probably tossed around, but, but Sean always came back to Bria because, you know, when you write, you're always seeing somebody in your head and that's the, she was always the closest to what we were seeing in our head. And, and then he flew her to Florida had her meet with once she met with Brooklyn and they instantly bonded. You could just see it right there. Like this was going to be the right choice. And she, she didn't disappoint in my oh, opinion. 
great instincts there uh, because the cast really does do a phenomenal job, and she she really blew me away as well. I, I I didn't know who she was watching the film, and I walked away from that thinking, oh my gosh, like that's that is a phenomenal performance. And then I looked it up, and I saw it was like the first time you know for her, and I'm like, you got to be kidding me! <laughs> you know? I know it's insane. I mean, and it's just a tribute to her talent her like raw talent and also just like Sean's ability with actors, you know, this hybrid of, of just talents having talents, having smashing collisions into each other to explode into something that, uh, that, that comes up with something fresh. And that's another thing. Sean didn't want it to become like, you know, think of any pop star that you can. He didn't want it to become the movie that people knew. He just wanted, he, he felt like a, a fresh face would help the story in that, in that character. Well, he was definitely right, I think. Um, I think a pop star would have probably, you know, detracted, if anything, or distracted, rather, uh, from the film. Yeah, sometimes sometimes we have these gimmicky ideas, and sometimes they're right for certain projects. For this one, he was right that it wasn't, because we had the gimmicky idea of, like, let's let's cast a former Mouseketeer in the role of Haley, just to sort of do another Disney sort of tie-in. But, uh, mm-hmm. but yeah, no, it wouldn't have yeah. worked. Uh, more general question. Uh Tell me about the positives uh, and negatives of working on a shoestring budget. Well, that's more of a tangerine or starlet question because, for compared to those, this was a, a little more. And, and uh, you know, still by by most feature you know standards, this is still very low budget. Um, but you know, one of the things I would always say with when talking about tangerines, micro, micro, hardly anything budget. Um, which is, again, what led to re- shooting it on the iPhone, is, is that I think that you figure out ways to get the stories told. And, and, and cameras and all that is, are just tools. You could still have the same characters in the same story. And when we look back at Tangerine, we've sort of come to the realization that Tangerine wouldn't have been Tangerine if we had a bigger budget, because then we would have probably shot that on 35. And if we shot Tangerine on 35 and had bigger cameras, we couldn't have had the same stuff captured and we, we just with the iPhone we were able to get like just down and dirty on the streets and, and get these shots that uh, that Sean was rigging the iPhone up to giant uh, you know giant poles yeah. to do makeshift makeshift crane shots and uh, and you wouldn't have been able to sort of do that that visual style with, with bigger rigs but then with this with this film you know we always we're cinephiles we always want to shoot film if we're able keep keep 35 millimeter alive and and i think it really kind of lends itself well to this story because alexis zabe is is the a mad genius cinematographer that shot the florida project and he always sort of wants to describe this movie as a uh, visually something that looks like ice cream and some with a with a blueberry twist and i love when he talks like that because it, it does like you just want to almost lick the screen when i look when i watch this movie uh the colors are so vibrant and and Sean and Alexis have talked about how they wanted to sort of capture what what life looked like to them when they were that age, when they were six, and everything sort of popped a little more and was, was brighter and more saturated. Yeah, um, it definitely was a really, really good choice. Like I was saying before, the colors really pop in this film, and it really helps the movie to come alive and give it its, uh, its own visual identity. Um, final question. Okay. After three films together... What is next for the collaboration between yourself and Sean Baker? Oh, wow. Well, you know, we never are quite sure. There's always a million. We, we have this idea vault. And just like Florida Project uh, was there for years before we had the right time to do it, I think it's just a matter of the projects telling us what, which one wants to go next the most. I'm excited about all of them. And hopefully we could still keep the... I think that we have, uh, we have different sensibilities. But that's what makes it a very cool thing working together because we sort of, there's always debating and challenging. And I think we, we can bring out sides, we can plus sides of each other that, uh, that I know wouldn't have been coming out if I was doing something, say, solo because he might uh, question or challenge some of my ideas and, and vice versa. All right. Well, you heard it here. You heard it here from uh, Chris Burgosh, uh, co- uh, producer and co-writer on the film, The Florida Project, being 
distributed by A24, currently in limited release. Um, hoping to get an expansion uh, on that pretty soon so that more people can definitely check it out and see it. Um, oh, yeah. Sure. That's happening. Uh, is that happening in a week, two weeks? or? Well, every week, I don't have the schedule in front of me, but I know for sure next Friday we're expanding to Orlando and Miami right. and uh, Austin and Austin and a few others. And uh, and then more to come. If, if people actually come, come out and support this kind of a low budget film on the big screen, you know, it'll, that'll help convince the distributor A24 to actually bring it to more places. And it really is a great, you know, like you said, um, a great big screen experience. And hopefully people will, um, will get to experience it like that. And, and also if we're really lucky, think about the real Haley and Haley's and Moonies out there. They're actually, you know, inspired the story yeah definitely for sure and uh, you know the response that the film has received so far from uh critics who have seen it uh press and uh, over just general audiences uh, as well has just been uh, i'm sure overwhelming for you guys the response is definitely there and i'm sure it's going to have tremendous word of mouth especially through this award season as it continues to roll on Chris, thank you so, so much uh, for joining me for this interview. I really appreciate it. Oh, no, thanks so, so much for having me. I really appreciate your support. And one more last thing, if anybody wants to, you know, ask any other questions, please feel free to let everybody know to, you know, Twitter. It's at uh, Chris Bergosh and at Lil Film for Sean. Excellent. You can find me on Twitter at Next Best Picture, and you have been listening to the Next Best Picture podcast, where you can subscribe to us on iTunes, SoundCloud, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, Player FM, and CastBox. Be sure to also leave us a review on iTunes. Nothing less than five stars is acceptable in our eyes, and we will see you all next time. Time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.